Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind, and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. the great Glenn Gare on the show. I'm really excited to introduce Glenn. Glenn is a longtime friend and mentor, I would say. And officially, he's the professor and chair of the psychology department, as well as director of the evolutionary studies program at the State University of New York in New Paltz. What else can I say about Glenn since uh, I feel like this is a personal interview? Glenn is a great guitarist in the band Questionable Authorities which we'll put up a link on YouTube for. And he also, his life motto is, life is short, play hard. Welcome, Glenn. Awesome. Thank you so much, Scott. It's great to be here. Yeah, what a life motto. You know I'm all about the value of play, right? Absolutely. Um, Have you personally looked at the um, evolutionary basis of play at all? I've run into some of the stuff on that in Peter Gray's work. You know, he studies education from an evolutionary perspective, and that's a huge focus of what he says our ancestors really were all about, particularly during childhood, you know, and that the distinction between play and schooling and education really isn't so distinct when you look at how these things play out in, in pre-Westernized and more natural kinds of societies. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely love that research. So your, the trajectory of your career is very interesting. You didn't necessarily start out as an evolutionary psychologist. You did work on social psychology with Jack Mayer, is that right? Yeah. And personality, even personality. Yeah. Yeah. So what I really like, and I think something that we um, connected or our mutual interest in trying to like reconcile individual differences with more universal adaptations, 
would you say that that's been kind of a major theme of your research? Or if not, you know, what are some other major themes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, one of the great things about studying human psychology is that we can study human universals. So there's lots of things that people around the globe all do. You know, we're bipedal, we stand, we're designed to walk. We have altricial children, our offspring need a lot of attention. So we like babies and we have nurturing kinds of tendencies. There's certain foods that people tend to like. There's certain foods that people tend to despise. So there's lots, there's emotions that people recognize regardless of who's expressing them or what culture the person is from that who is expressing them. So there's lots of things that are universal about the human animal. And that's great. Wait, and, we're animals? Right. You didn't get the memo? Oh, shoot. Yeah, check your inbox. <laughs> I thought we were above that. <laughs> nope. Nope. All animals are different. And I'd argue that none is above any of the others. They're all just adapted in their own way. Oh, wow. That's so cool. So like, it's not like we're above turtles. Absolutely not, man. That's so cool. I love that. And then even within then that, then the implication is even within humans where we shouldn't like act as though like any of us are above anyone else. Absolutely, man. I mean, from the evolutionary perspective, you know, all life comes from the same origins. You know, the origin story from the evolutionary perspective, I'd say is just as, as powerful and soulful and interesting as what you might find in any religion. You know, this idea that all organisms are highly interrelated to one another, all come from a common ancestor. And there's, you know, all the great biological research points to the fact that all life comes from a common ancestor. There's genetic overlap, not only obviously between humans, but between humans and other primates, but even between humans and grasshoppers and insects, there are certain specific genetic elements that are identical in humans, as you tend to find in in lots of other kinds of life forms. So, you know, it's it's a grand view. You know, Darwin had this phrase, there's grandeur in this view of life. And I absolutely agree with that perspective. Yeah, me too. I, I really do think there's wonder. There's wonder in the world itself, even without going beyond it. So, yeah, your research spans so many and integrates so many different threads. I'm trying to think of priorities, what to start with first. Perhaps the best thing to start with is this area of mutual interest, something called, have you heard of mating intelligence? I think I've heard of that one, Scott. <laughs> so Glenn Gare coined the phrase mating intelligence, right? Yeah. And when did you do that? In 2005? About 2005. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about the history of the construct of the idea. That'd be great. So when I was a graduate student at the University of New Hampshire back in the day, studying social psychology, um, I was working with Jack Mayer, who's the person who coined the term emotional intelligence and conducted a whole bunch of research on emotional abilities that people all have to some degree that people vary on from one another as well. And he calls this emotional intelligence. And so I did research on that. I was very fortunate to be working with him. I also worked with Becky Warner, who is a social psychologist, studying lots of different things, but particularly the nature of intimate relationships. So I was fascinated by understanding the interpersonal or the intrapersonal processes, like emotional processes that we bring to relationships and just the nature of how people form relationships. This is kind of the interface of what we might call personality psychology and social psychology to some extent. Yeah, Glenn, you also integrated Freud things, psychoanalytic stuff in one of your papers. I well, my papers did. That was my yeah. dissertation, actually. I love that paper, yeah. Thank you, Scott. Can you talk a little bit about that paper in particular? Or sure. Dissertation? And I'll tell you, that actually, um, that got me interested in the evolutionary perspective in working on that particular paper. So there's this idea, you know, when you're doing your dissertation in grad school, 
depending on your advisor and your situation, you can really study something that seems interesting to you or any question that really hasn't been fully addressed by prior researchers. So as someone studying relationships, I was interested in this question of the extent to which people's parents influence their partner choice, right? So there's a sort of old Freudian idea of, you know, you, you end up marrying someone who's just like your opposite sex parent. Is there any validity to this? And so it was a pretty straightforward question. I looked at the literature to see, has anyone really studied that in a systematic kind of way? And it hadn't really been studied in a very systematic. So we collected a bunch of data from people that were early in relationships. People in their 20s, a high proportion of them were people who were engaged to be married, for instance. We asked them to fill out a whole battery of personality measures to describe themselves, their parents, their same-sex parent, their opposite-sex parent, their romantic partner, and their ideal romantic partner. And we essentially ran um, a whole bunch of advanced statistics to sort of see where was their overlap and where was their not. We also had their actual opposite-sex parent fill out their own measure, so we had that data. And then we had the parents of the opposite-sex parent or of the romantic partner fill out their own data as well, as much as we could. Wait, so not the grandparent? Correct. Okay, not the parent of the parent. Okay. Not the parent of the parent. Okay, okay. Right. Because that'd be weird if it went all the way back to like, we ma- it's like we don't marry our parents, but we actually marry our grandparents. That's, <laughs> that's, that would be awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, or we marry someone that looks like, we should say. Right, okay, right. Go on. So, so what, what we found essentially was that people perceived similarity when it's not really there. So that was kind of interesting. Oh, wow. There was a lot more perceived similarity between people's partners and their parents than there was actual similarity. And people's ideal romantic partners were actually very similar to their perceptions of their parents. So very strong idealization bias going on. Is there a confound here in terms of we know a sort of meeting, we tend to be attracted to people who are similar to us. And genetically, we're similar to our parents. Mm-hmm. Is there a confound there in that, like, the maybe what it is we're really just, you know, we're attracted to, mm-hmm. like, there's like an overlap of things that are similar between us and our parents, and it's yeah. really just us. That's a really good point. Gosh, I haven't thought in this detail about my dissertation <laughs> for decades, but I'll tell you, we thought carefully about that. And oh. in fact, what we did was we did what are called, maybe they were hierarchical regression analyses, oh. something where we partialed out self-report ratings for exactly that purpose, to see if the perceived similarity between parents and partners was still there, controlling for perceptions of the self. And generally speaking, we did find that. So it's a good question, and the effect sort of was still there. Wow. So the short answer is that we we do tend to... Is this married? People who are married are in relationships. A subset were married. A subset were college students in dating relationships. And then, this was the fun part, we went to a bridal convention. No way. Yeah, to collect data. So I was I, I was engaged to, to my beautiful wife, Kathy, at the time. Oh, yeah. And so we were kind of doing uh, double dipping by going to this bridal convention in yeah. Manchester, New Hampshire. And What's got, a bridal convention, by the way? Man alive. I, I have a lot of ideas, but I'm... Yeah. <laughs> Dude, you don't ever want to go to one of these. <laughs> I mean, it's like, like a map. Imagine like this is like a giant convention center and then there's like a whole thing about there's like the dresses, you know, this is the dress you got to get. And then there's the cake person and it's the kind of thing. Well, at least this is my experience. You're kind of like, all right, you want it to sort of keep on going. But maybe your fiance wanted to sort of stop and look over things in a lot of detail. 
So it was a little bit interesting, but we had a good time. And, and I, you know, I got to approach people as a doctoral student at the University of New Hampshire saying, please fill out my survey. And we got some data from those folks as well. Very. And so what do you find from them? They're, Same thing pretty much? Yeah, pretty much. The, the, it kind of, uh, we went, we worked so hard to get the data from that particular sample and they were no different. That sample didn't behave any, any differently. Wow. So the punchline is we do, there is an effect here more so than we realize. Yeah. Yeah, because of course we want to, for evolutionary perspective, we want to downplay that, right? We don't, you know, because there's not evolutionary value in marrying your actual mother. Right. right. So, <laughs> right. yeah, so interesting. Okay, so I know you weren't expecting to go all the way back there. Has it literally been decades, like multiple decades? I finished that, my degree in 97. I think that got published in 2000. Wow. So you do the math, my man. We are getting older, Glenn. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. Okay. So we can go move forward a little bit. So you moved on. So that was your dissertation work. And then at what point did you like discover maybe Darwin or like, like when were you doing it? When did you start like okay. con- coming in contact with evolutionary psychology principles? Sure. Yeah, I'd be, be glad to talk about that. So I was a college student at the University of Connecticut back in the day. That was also decades ago. Oh, wow. So we're even going before, back this before is, grad school. Yeah, this is ancient. What was your major? Uh, psychology. Wow. And like a lot of students, I thought I was going to be a therapist. Because I thought psychologist and therapist were synonymous, which, right. by the way, is what almost all incoming psychology students in college think. Yeah. And I had a very, it was a very strong undergraduate program. I had a great experience. I found out that there's a big scientific part to psychology, and that's the part that I really fell in love with and wanted to pursue. And at some point, I had a class called Animal Behavior with a guy named Benjamin Sachs, renowned rat behavioral researcher. And this class killed it for me, man. There was no other class I had which had this effect. He started the class by describing basic evolutionary principles, which hadn't even been touched in any of my other psychology classes. And it was pretty straightforward. I mean, I like math and I like to think reasonably, logically. And so I kind of liked, you know, evolutionary principles and evolutionary theory makes sense. And so he kind of describes that. And then the next thing he does, he has some grad students will in a cage with these rats and there's a male rat and a female rat and he says this is the very beginning of class he just says get a piece of paper and a pencil and just write down observations so okay so there i am 21 years old or whatever me and a bunch of other kids and we're looking at it and they're having mating related behaviors (laughs) right for like a half hour and you know this is class this is what we're doing the male is much bigger than the female the female tries very hard to resist the male. She puts up her claws. So why do rats have claws like that? Essentially tries to scratch him in the face and tries to keep him off. He, well, why didn't female humans evolve claws? Maybe they did. Oh, interesting. <laughs> right? Okay, yeah. So we just take notes. There's so many interesting things involved in that set of behaviors. And then we describe them to the professor. And what the point of this was, he said, okay. And he, just, he wrote down on the board all the specific things that we had observed, and he described how every last bit of it could be understood from an evolutionary perspective. For instance, why are males bigger than females? Well, if the females are constantly fighting the males off, and this, mind you, is when they've been given a shot so that they are at their body is essentially mimicking peak estrus. So even at that point, she is fighting off the male as hard as she can. The larger males are going to be more likely to be able to to copulate. This so, is among rats. It's among rats. So why are the male rats so aggressive? The females are fending off the males. So here's the adaptation. So for females to fend off males like that, 
And then the males, what they end up doing is leading to an evolutionary process that leads to larger males because the smaller males would not succeed and would not successfully reproduce. So across generations, this is going to lead to relatively large males. So this is what we call sexual dimorphism. In this particular case, males being larger than females. And it was sort of one aspect of their mating behavior after another, after another. He describes from an evolutionary perspective. And I was like, this is just fantastic. It made so much sense. A few years later, I'm at the University of New Hampshire studying emotional intelligence and relationships. I'm in the PhD program studying human behavior. And a guy named David Buss comes to visit. David Buss is a renowned evolutionary psychologist. Who's like, very tall. He's giant, right? Yeah. He's giant in all respects. <laughs> so, so David comes and he gives a talk at UNH. He had just written a book that came out, The Evolution of Desire. And he talked about human relationship behavior the same way that Benjamin Sachs had talked about the rats in that class I had taken a few years earlier as an undergrad. And I was like, man, this makes so much sense. You know, so I sort of kept that, that confluence of ideas in mind. And as I became a professor in my own right and did my own research, I really sort of became very interested in continuing research that looked at human relationships and other aspects of human behavior from the evolutionary perspective. And then why did you coin mating intelligence? And then tell me what mating intelligence is. Sure. So years later, I was doing, I'm really passionate about research. I've done a lot of research. I tend to bring students into my research as collaborators, which is one of the things that's been great about my job. And other people, you embraced me. Yeah, really, I'll always be appreciative of that. I will never forget. Yeah. And, and in fact, I definitely want to talk about how you came in to the, yeah, the yeah. some point. But, you know, so early on when I was at here at SUNY New Paltz, I was doing a bunch of research, working with a bunch of students. We were studying various aspects of human mating from an evolutionary perspective. And at some point, I realized that what Jack Mayer had done with emotional intelligence needed to be done for the concept of mating. So in mating psychology to that point, it was a little bit unclear if there was any mating psychology of individual differences. Right. So when you would read the stuff by people like David Buss, who, by the way, I have the utmost respect for, you would primarily focus on things that were human universals. So things that people like in mates. Generally speaking, people appreciate kindness and love in mates. Generally speaking, females appreciate things like markers of status and resource acquisition. Generally speaking, men appreciate markers of fertility, health, and beauty. And you know, this has led this research and this idea has led to a landslide of research. But at some point it occurred to me there wasn't any taking into account the fact that maybe some people are better at some of these things than are others, which is kind of the idea of like emotional intelligence kind of said, you know, people have emotional skills, but some people have extra special emotional skills. It occurred to me, why don't we look at the same thing with mating, with the idea that everyone has mating psychology, but some people might be particularly good at specialized domains yes. of psychology. Yes. Anyway, you had this insight? This was the insight, man. Wow. I'm just fascinated. Where do these insights come from? Is it sort of like all these different things you were exposed to all these years and then like it just subconsciously like connects? You're like, you're in the bathtub or something? And then you, you know, went to Eureka? <laughs> I'll tell you, I wasn't in the bathtub, but um, one thing I think you know about me, Scott, is I, I'm a long distance runner. 
And for years, ever since maybe the mid nineties, I've run typically five, four or five times a week. I've run eight marathons. And I just, once I started being a long distance runner, I just, you know, it's something that I feel like I absolutely have to do. And I do remember I was on a morning run. It was in the winter. It was cold. I was with my my dog, Murphy, at the time. Cool. I've never heard this story before. So this is really exciting. You've never, never told, told this before. I've never told this story. No. <laughs> and wow. it was, I remember it was like a five or six mile run that I was on. And by the time I came back the whole time, I I think that's what I do when I'm when I'm out running. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of think and I integrate and I come up with ideas and think about solutions to problems. And I came back to the house one day and I took my dog inside and I sat down at the computer and I said, mating intelligence. And I remember I came up with a research project that I demarcated. I came up with the idea for a book and started work on a, uh, an edited, proposing an edited volume. Were you planning on doing that with Jeffrey Miller at that time or did that? No. So I'll tell you. Yeah. So I, I did. I remember I came home and I had like, I was like, this is it, man. I'm going to make research on this and I'm going to work with my students and come up with a whole yeah whole set of ideas. I'm going to do a book on this that has different scholars. An edited book is one where you edit the book, but different experts in the field write chapters for the book. And I remember, I think I woke up my wife, Kathy, at the time. And I was like, Kathy, I got this idea. You're going to love it. <laughs> I have this idea about meeting intelligence. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> So, and I'd say, so, you know, as a professor, that's the most amazing job in the world. I came into my office that day. I found some of my best students and I said, here's what we're doing, you know, and we just sat down and we just started designing these research studies and we've probably published 10 studies on this topic since that time. Yeah. I remember you had already, like when I came into contact with you, you had worked on this large scale study on like error management theory, if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah. Right, right. All that. Yeah. I mean, I think that was a great study. But this is the part where Scott enters. Oh, yeah. So we're, this, we're at like 2005 now or something. 2000 is, yeah, it was 2005. Jeez. And so, you came up with a theory. This, wait, when, what year was this like running thing? Oh, I think that might have been 2000, this, either 2004 or 2005. I'm yeah, not This sure. Eureka moment. Right. Because when I when I came into the picture, I had heard about this edited volume that you were putting together right. from Mark Brack. Right. Mark Brackett was one of the contributors. Right. And I was like, this sounds like this coolest thing since sliced bread. Oh my God. So from my perspective, this was great. Because I remember one day I was in my office and I get this email from some kid, Scott Barry Kaufman. I don't know who this person is. And it was a very well put together email and it was maybe about three paragraphs. I mean, do we have it saved at all? Oh, I'm sure I do. I'm sure I have it saved some. <laughs> You know, and I read it and I was like, oh, my God, this guy's like me. I mean, it had this like, you know, he had no problem reaching out to someone he never met before. He had no problem saying, here's a great idea. I'd love to work with you on it. Here's who I am. Here's what I could bring to it. And I got to tell you, Scott, man, that was it. That was so effective. I read that and I'm like, then I look, I'm like, this kid's getting his PhD at, at Yale in psychology. There's really nothing higher than that. This guy must have what it takes. So I replied back, I think, very shortly after, probably yeah. like within the hour. And I was within like, two minutes. I said, so I'm like, I didn't say let's talk. I was like, let's do this. Right? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, because every now and then you can tell by someone's communication. I'm like, this is someone I could work with. For sure. So I remember you're at Yale. So I'm at in the Hudson Valley. We're about two hours apart. I said, well, why don't we meet in Danbury, which is a town in Connecticut in the middle. And I remember, I think I was watching my daughter, Megan, at the time. She was in kindergarten. She so I came remember, along to the meeting, I think. Brought Meg. 
I remember she had her kindergarten homework. <laughs> seriously. Oh my God. I remember you had done so much research on how to publish a book. Because I don't know if your readers out there know this about you or not, but before you became an expert at publishing awesome books, you thought very hard about how... Don't tell them my secrets. It's <laughs> a good point. That's, that was it, man. And that was, and it was exactly... You had done all the research that there was no way I was going to have time to do. And I'm like, this is such a good match. Yeah. Scott had done all this research on how to publish your book. And I had this great idea or this idea that Scott and I thought was great. And we started collaborating at that point. So at that point, I asked Scott to contribute a chapter to my edited book, right. which I ultimately brought Jeffrey Miller on as co-editor. So um, at that specific moment, was Jeffrey not officially a co-editor of the book? Not at that particular point. He wow. joined on, I would say about, let's say the project went from about 2004, it was published in I think 2008. By the way, that's how long these projects take. Yeah. I mean, you've joined on about 2006, about midway. Well, our book just came out in 2013, right? 2013. <laughs> right, right. And this meeting in Danbury yeah. in 2005 was step one. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's, yeah, I just was so excited that you responded and, and wanted to pursue this. So what happened is that we worked on a popular version of the book, separate from your – I just want to make clear this is separate from your edited book. Right. And so your edited book – I think has made quite a contribution to the field of, you know, a lot of people cite a lot of people, a lot of articles from there are really good. You have probably Maureen Sullivan's, one of her last. It was her last published work. It was actually her last? Uh, in fact, she and I, so I don't know if people know who Maureen O'Sullivan was, but she was one of the greats. Yeah. Um, she was one of the great social psychologists. And when we met her, she was a little bit older. And she had published with Paul Ekman maybe dozens of articles on the social psychology of emotion and deception. And she was it. I mean, Maureen O'Sullivan was it. And she became very interested in how all the things she had studied her career related to the mating process near the end of her career. So she contributed a terrific chapter to our book. And she and I got along great. We had plans to do some studies together, actually. But she passed away prematurely soon after that book. But yeah, so so that book was a it was a really fun project. It has some very interesting contributions. It's very scholarly. I mean, I, one of the only criticisms I tend to hear of it is that it's written across the chapters at a pretty pretty high level. But that's you know the point of that kind of book. And then so that was Mating Intelligence, published in two thousand eight. And then so Scott and me, we probably do a whole podcast on the history of our book together. But. <laughs> You know, we eventually published it with Oxford University Press, which we were so pumped about. And uh, if the first one's Mating Intelligence, then this book had to be titled Mating Intelligence Unleashed. And I got to say, man, that's been... That was your idea, the unleashed part. <laughs> in fact, the publisher at some point said, that's kind of, do you really want the word unleashed in there? Do you, <laughs> and do you remember my answer, Scott? Like... Well, hell yeah, or something like that. It's staying. It's staying. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that a lot of people find it really funny when I when I mention, like, I'll say, like, I was in class the other day, and I was, you know, because I'm teaching a class uh, at positive psychology, and I was like, um, you know, and there's a book that relates to some of the stuff I'm talking about. It's called Meeting Intelligence, and I said Unleashed, and they they found it really funny. <laughs> That's it, man. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a great book title. It's a great book. <laughs> if I don't say so myself, right. <laughs> 
<laughs> so for the rest of this podcast, I know that a lot of people, a lot of listeners are probably at this point like, okay, I really don't care about you guys. Like what is mate? Like how can I use mating intelligence in my own life to achieve my own mating goals? Not everyone, maybe their goals are not just get laid. Maybe it's to have a, a God forbid, a, a meaningful relationship with someone that lasts a long time and makes you feel both, right. both fulfilled, right? Can the mating intelligence construct, is, do you think it's relevant to all these different levels of analysis, Glenn? Yeah, I mean, or outcomes or goals. I think I think it definitely does, and I think that our book, um, even though it was designed as sort of a popular book and had kind of a witty title, one of the comments I get on on our book is that it is chock full of data and chock full of research. Um, so it's a pretty intense book, actually. Good. It gets at every I don't know about every aspect of the mating domain, but it's very I think it's pretty comprehensive. Yeah, and I think that gets at the idea. That's for sure. We, we, how many references do we have? <laughs> so, so in the New York Post reported, we had a thousand references in there. Um, they said it's the peer-reviewed version of the game or something. Right, right. That was the New York Times. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a compliment. Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty in- so. intense. But I think you know what it comes down to is if you think about mating intelligence defined, and that was really how we started the book, as the set of cognitive processes that bear on the mating domain, you got a big canvas to work with, you know, because you have all the things related to presenting yourself in a mating context. How can I attract a mate? All the things related to finding a good mate, which is a major issue from an evolutionary perspective, because if you're finding someone that you're going to ultimately reproduce with, having that person help with the process and having offspring that are themselves able to effectively reproduce is evolutionarily critical. There's a lot of deception in the mating domain, right? Oh, it turns out, Scott, <laughs> there's research. People out. deceive each other? Tons of it. You know, and, and so that's the whole thing, too. Like, there's a lot of research on people deceive in specific kinds of ways. So males tend to overemphasize their money, their assets, their status. There's a great study by another collaborator of ours, Dan Kruger, where he looked at credit card usage. And by the way, don't overrun your credit cards. There's a little little lesson for the young males out there. But young men are most likely of different demographic groups to overrun their credit cards and run into debt. But what you do when you run into debt like that is you can present yourself as having more than you actually have, right? So you can drive a nicer car than you can really afford. You can have nicer clothes than you can actually afford. And these things might be signals that show you have a lot of resources. So there's something very deceptive about that. You know, but this kind of like, it kind of like, it paints the portrait as though like women are superficial. Well... Do you think they, they you're sitting at a subconscious level, they really care about things like that? I think I wouldn't necessarily put it that way. I think what I'd say is that across evolutionary time, women who ended up with men who had high access to resources were more successful than other women. So there's kind of like an adaptation there? There's got to be an adaptation there. Very strong universal in, in female desires and mates are that women tend to care about the ability to acquire resources and the ability to, to demonstrate that one has resources. And this has been shown cross-culturally? Yeah. So David Buss and David Schmidt in particular have done extensive cross-cultural studies documenting that. So I'd say that if men over-demonstrate, sort of deceive how much they have, that sort of is playing into this evolved tendency of females to sort of seek out markers of high resources. And um, maybe it'd be helpful to the listener to distinguish between distal and proximal causes. I find this is just over and over again a common 
point of contention for people who who um, have criticism of the evolutionary psychology approach. So it probably is good to just like get that out of there right now. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Not um, get that out of there. Get that out there. <laughs> Sorry. Out there. Yeah. So yeah. anytime you have any behavior, there's always multiple causes of the behavior. One of the biggest mistakes I tend to see among students and often even among academics is when you hear someone argue, this is the cause of the behavior and this is not. In fact, every behavior has multiple causes. And sometimes causes exist at different levels. So if we think about, for instance, why do the female rats try to fend off the males during the mating process, right? Well, on one hand, the, the male coming toward her is an immediate stimulus that brings about this chain of behavior. So that's an immediate or what we might, we might call a proximate cause of the behavior. Additionally, there are hormones and, and um, physiological processes that underlie that behavior as well. But from an ultimate perspective, we can also say, well, why did this ultimately evolve? Which is often the same as asking, what is adaptive about this behavior? How did it help the ancestors of this animal survive and oh, reproduce? Right. So not necessarily adaptive to today. Correct. Okay. Correct. That's so such a point of confusion, I think, that people... I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So we need to realize that a lot of times when evolutionary psychologists use the word adaptive, they are talking about something that would have helped our ancestors survive and reproduce under ancestral conditions. So, so, so there's all these like things in our current environment that we didn't have in our – credit cards didn't exist. Right. I don't think it makes right. the cavemen. But we have these things that kind of like activate some like deep-seated drives and instincts in, in modern-day forms. Is that, is that an okay way to put yeah. it? Yeah, I think that's a good way to okay. put it. And there's things now that did not exist under ancestral conditions – that might be what we call evolutionary mismatches, right? So cavemen, right, to put it sort of simply, cavemen were not able to, if they had only 30 rocks, they were going to have a hard time showing someone that they had 50 rocks, right? Because, right. you know, they couldn't do that. But nowadays, if someone only has a salary of $20,000, but has some, you know, some powerful credit cards, they can show themselves as someone who has a salary that's much higher than that. So we're able Due to modern technologies, which mismatch the technologies that our ancestors had, people can deceive themselves in mating relevant ways in ways that are not really evolutionarily natural. This is expanded or compounded by modern technologies. So things like Tinder and OkCupid and things like that, when people are using electronic media to engage in the mating domain, Suddenly, everything's different, right? So you can totally edit your picture. You can edit your profile. You can write and rewrite things. You can edit under ancestral conditions or even 15, 20 years ago when you just met someone in a mating-relevant context. You look like what you look like and you said what you said, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways that modern technologies, I'm not saying that they're bad, but I am saying that in a lot of ways they mismatch the kinds of conditions that existed under ancestral Times. And I'll tell you, probably one of the most intriguing examples of this has to do with women's cosmetics. So males, for various reasons, males... Um, well, and how do you know How do you know about women's cosmetics? <laughs> all, uh, my wife gets Cosmopolitan magazine. Okay. <laughs> right? But interesting, when you, when you think about cosmetics, cosmetics is an enormous industry. The average woman has been in this country, I think, spends several hundred dollars a month or some crazy amount on this stuff. 
the industry itself is billions and billions of dollars. What is the cosmetic industry, right? So what what women do is with with lipstick and anti wrinkle cream and hair coloring, they're presenting themselves physically in a way essentially that makes them look younger to match males' desires for relatively younger. No, I mean it's it's to really look young for an adult. Okay. So women so are. So if you're eighty, it'll like I it'll make you look like forty sort of thing. I think it's really good cosmetics that could do that. <laughs> so when you look at it, when you see what are women buying, yeah, it tells a very clear story, right? Okay. So lipstick makes lips look relatively full and robust. If you look at the lips of a relatively old woman, right, thin. Wrinkle cream, you don't ever see get more wrinkle, wrinkle cream. It's always right. get rid of your wrinkle, wrinkle cream to match the skin that's more typical of women that are more likely to be in their fertile uh, oh, time. so there it is. There it is. It's the fertile thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. When you go to the hair coloring aisle, um, you see stuff to make the hair look blonde, red, brown. You don't tend to see a lot of gray hair color, as an example. But that's interesting because gray among males is considered mm-hmm. – a lot of females find that very attractive. What, what's the difference there? Right. Yeah, well, well, males have a very different situation because for females, there's menopause. So females have a very discreet window in which they can reproduce, whereas males, and it's kind of icky to think about, but males can effectively reproduce essentially into their old age, right? So, and right. so because of that, it's, there's less pressures on women to be particularly attracted to younger men as there are pressures on men to be attracted to relatively younger women. Okay. Okay. So all this stuff we're talking about, that's one aspect of mating intelligence. But I think that a key function, a key feature, I should say, of mating intelligence is all these non-physical aspects of humans that make us immensely sexy and attractive to each other. We differ from orangutans. I think we say this in our book. We differ from orangutans and turtles in that they can't like sing love ballads to each other. Some birds can, but they can't really like write complex prose or, or do all sorts of things that are also attractive. Could you speak to some of the non-physical aspects of mating intelligence that are attractive and then what can people do to increase that aspect of them? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things about human mating intelligence is that there's an awful lot of cognitive processes that are mating relevant, but that are indirectly mating relevant. The person who really... Um, uncovered this idea and elaborated on it was Jeffrey Miller at the University of New Mexico, who came up with a really groundbreaking idea regarding sexual selection in humans related to the evolution of human creativity and intelligence. He essentially argued that each species has its own processes by which individuals will attract members of the opposite sex. A lot of times these are incredibly species-specific, right? So peacocks, the female looks for the bright the big bright tail, right? If you and I walked around Philadelphia with a big bright tail, I don't know if we'd get a lot of females looking at us, right? Humans use behavior and markers of creativity and markers of intelligence to attract members of the opposite sex. Um, So courtship includes an awful lot of displays of creativity. Um, That's why, so if you think about like, why do humans write poetry? Yeah. Poetry is not adaptive. It's not going to help save you from a saber tooth tiger attack. But it might help you find a mate. So if something is not helpful from a survival perspective, but it still is species typical, then it might be beneficial from a reproductive 
perspective. And all of the kinds of creativity that seem uniquely human, um, but that don't seem to have a lot of immediate survival value, may well be explicable in terms of them being sort of mechanisms of courtship and mechanisms of attempts to attract mates. That's really good, Glenn. I'm trying to think of um, other of like I want to get like if if we can can we get into like really specific things like humor like right. creativity like even God forbid intelligence <laughs> do these right. things how do they play out like on a in our not evolutionary like in our day to day you know lives you know how can we use these things to attract people are they, are they attractive first of all like is creativity tra- attractive yeah I mean th- these things definitely are so. There's a great study that Jeffrey Miller conducted with some of his students at New Mexico a while back where they simply told their participants, there was a couple rounds of participants, and they told them, the Martians are coming to Albuquerque. Here's pencil and paper, draw it. And what they found was that there was extraordinary variability in the quality of these drawings. They gave them a discrete amount of time, maybe 10 minutes. Some of these drawings were incredibly good. Some of them were medium a lot of them were medium and some of them were look like a a four-year-old well how much do they control for artistic ability versus you know create creative generation right i don't know i'm not sure how these were rated i think they were partly ultimately rated in addition to how high quality they were from the raiders so this was another group of participants rated them i think they also rated them in terms of how attractive they thought this person was oh you know, and it was simple enough that people that, that drew stuff that was rated as higher quality were rated as probably more attractive. Probably the most clear-cut study along these lines, well, I guess there's a couple, but one's conducted by Dan Nettle, who's in England, who studied mating relevant outcomes. Wait, wait, did you tell us what, ha- what the results were of the Miller study? That the targets who drew the relatively high-quality okay. art were rated as more attractive or like, more attractive or did people see the their facial features at all it was just i don't think they did i think it was just a shot in the dark so interesting right? yeah right? and pretty similar to dan nettle's research which was more um in the field actual he studied actual poets so this idea that poetry might have evolved because it is courtship relevant what he argued was then that probably means if you look at a bunch of male poets the ones who are good poets are probably more likely to have more mating partners. And this is exactly what he found. So there's definitely some research um, from different threads, different uh, researchers, different aspects of creativity, showing that there do seem to be some attractiveness relevant outcomes associated with high quality products of creativity. What about humor? Yeah, definitely the same with humor. In fact, I know someone who wrote a great book chapter on that. Uh, who <laughs> I'll, right? I'll put that in the show notes of uh, that chapter um why could you say like why are some of these forms of creativity attractive sure evolutionary well, perspective from an evolutionary perspective humor is good because humor signals you can signal a lot of things so in in attracting a mate you're trying to present a lot of different things about yourself you want to present yourself as smart you want to present yourself as kind you want to present yourself as emotionally stable. You want to present yourself as socially smart, socially sensitive. And through humor, you can actually do an awful lot of that. So, you know, people have studied various kinds of humor, and there's definitely different different kinds of humor. So some people have are really good at mean humor. What's it called mean? 
mean humor. That's what I'm calling it. Oh, okay. I right? thought for a second you were saying meme. <laughs> okay. Right. No, no, no. So other deprecating humor, right? Something that sort of puts other people down. Okay. Uh, yeah, some people are good at that, right? There's something kind of funny about when people do that, but there's something kind of hurtful about that as well. Yeah. Uh, there's also self-deprecating humor, right? Which might be just as funny, but it also has a signal of I'm not out to hurt other people. I'm not out to other uh, bring other people down. So the right. kind of humor that people use can be a very big signal about what kind of person that person is in a more general sense. And your effectiveness in using humor is also a really important signal as well. And there's interactions there with social status. Those with high social status who use self-deprecating humor are considered very attractive. Right. Right. And those in low social status who use self-deprecating humor are considered very unattractive. Right. Right. Is that, so, is that right? Am I right? Yeah, I think that's the finding. And high status people who use other deprecating put other people down. That's not considered very attractive either. So that's kind of goes against this myth of the alpha male. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we could talk about this alpha beta distinction. What does the mating intelligence perspective bring to the table in terms of this idea of do nice guys finish last? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, a part of our book that I think was really well elaborated in a chapter that you took the lead on. The mating intelligence idea really focuses very much on individual differences in, in the nature of mating, yeah. right? You think about male mating strategies, you know, some guys are jerks, right? And then we all know people that, like, oh, I can't believe that guy has all these women that like him. You know, everyone knows he's a jerk. How could this be? Yeah. Right? So we kind of have that phenomenon. And then we also wonder, you know, oh, this guy's such a nice guy. Too bad he'll, he'll never get a girlfriend because he's too nice. You know, so this is like another sort of stereotype that we might have. So when you actually look at the data, when you look at and there's tons of research on this particular question, it turns out that it's much more complex than that. And that depending on the situation, a guy who's giving off other deprecating kinds of signals, right? We might call this guy a jerk or we might use other words for someone like that might be attractive to some women under some conditions, you know, over demonstrating dominance. Well, dominance, it's good to be with someone who's dominant because that person might dominate others in a social situation or in right. social circles. Um, but there's costs associated with that as well. That person might inflict costs on you. That person might be overly dominant on yourself. And then if there's someone who's like, you know, quote, too nice, well, there's also great things about that, right? This is someone who's who's not going to hurt others in the social circle, not hurt, hurt you. So there ends up being sort of costs and, and benefits to either of these very simple yeah. social strategies, right? And I think one of the things, and, and you could elaborate a little bit on this, Scott, but one of the things that the analysis essentially found was that men who have high status, but that bring other people in and don't put others down and sort of try to build consensus, people that are very good at that, those are really people that are much more attractive than someone who's high status but puts other people down, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It seems like one of the most attractive combinations or the package is compassion and assertiveness. Right. Together as a package seems to be much, much more attractive than dominance, you know, dominance being that aggressive kind of dominance with, mm -hmm. like you said, you know, it could be used against the partner and the partner showing doesn't want that. Right. So it's almost like, um, like leadership is, is very sexy and doing good in the world and, and giving your value set to the world. But if you're doing it to like dominate others, to just win, 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 maybe outside of the sports competition, that's not considered as attractive. 
but yeah, obviously sports is considered very attractive, right? Yeah, but then even in sports, though, I mean, there there's sports figures that we like more than others. That's right. So, that's right. Like, like there's some really gracious winners, and there are some some athletes. Like when he was on the court, you know, Michael Jordan just had an air about him, like he was he was awesome. He was yeah. all, you know, but he wasn't. No offense to Dennis Rodman, but he wasn't Dennis Rodman. You know, he wasn't making a mockery of, of things. He wasn't putting other people down. You know, so so even those even even in sports where the entire goal is to just just to win. You know, we still see variability in people, in people that are leaders and that have the respect of sort of everyone for good reasons versus not so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about that topic today. So is there any other aspect of mating intelligence? You know, we have time, I think, for one more uh, component to bring in either a mating mechanism, which is one part of mating intelligence are called mating mechanisms. Those are things that are kind of universal, right? And things that we use, like strategies we use to attract people. Or the other end is mating displays, things that there's individual differences in that we, you know, things we, we talked about, humor, creativity, uh, the analog of the peacock's tail. Are there any uh, mechanisms or displays you uh, want to talk about for the rest of this podcast? Sure. I think one thing that um, we really focused on in the book that I think is a great takeaway message has to do with what we call life history strategy, which is a parallel concept with mating intelligence, something that I think relates very strongly to mating intelligence. Life history strategy is essentially the differential tendency to live life as if you expect a relatively long, safe life. And for technical reasons, we call these people high K. So people that are high K expect a long, safe life in a safe environment. Or people that are low K, which essentially corresponds to people who for good reasons often expect their lives to be relatively short, expect their environments to be relatively unsafe. And someone who's high in mating intelligence is pretty good at calibrating their life history strategy. Good thing about people in our society, and this wouldn't be everyone by any means, but we're pretty fortunate. In fact, I'd argue that we're extremely fortunate. I live five miles from here. I'm going to go home later. I got my small nuclear family we're going to sit around by the fire. You know, no one's going to come in and attack us. We got two dogs. Even if they did, you know, the dogs would help out. We have an incredibly safe life. Tomorrow I'm going to go to work, hang out in the office. Nothing terrible is going to happen here. And, you know, same thing. So this is the environmental context for a relatively high K strategy, right? And so I know, Scott, you, you have a similar, like most people listening to this podcast would probably fit into an environmental situation that's relatively high K. Well, the adaptive... I live in Philadelphia, Glenn. I don't know about that. (laughs) I guess it depends which part, right? But but, I mean, and not everyone does. But when you live in an environment, in a background, and have an upbringing that's a relatively high-K kind of upbringing, the best mating strategy ends up being one that is conducive to few offspring that are taken care of very well. In our society, this usually corresponds to monogamy, monogamous situation and this is usually in a high k environment a really optimal kind of mating strategy so there's lots of different mating strategies but this idea that males should be you know out for short-term gains that females should be on the lookout for that and only out for long-term gains once you get into the world of high k everyone benefits from relatively long-term mating strategies and that's true for both males and females. And that's something that, that we discuss, I think, quite a bit in the book. And I think it's a useful 
for at least the kinds of lives that, that we're fortunate to live, I think it's a very useful perspective. So useful. And, it, you know, and relate to that is the fact that there's so many similarities. Probably, I think we are going to book there are more similarities between men and women than there are differences, even though we can focus on those. Some researchers exclusively focus on those differences. It doesn't mean that, that there are more differences than similarities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so easy for the mind to see differences, right? So like if you go into your office in the morning and there's, let's say like there's a stapler in the middle of the one table that you know wasn't there before, right? I mean, that's how our mind works automatically. Like, whoa, there's a stapler there. That's different. You know, who put that there? What's going on? You know, when you step back, your office is 99% exactly what it looked like before. So our mind is, is sort of prone towards seeing differences. The same thing happens when we look at males and females, right? So instead of, there's definitely differences between males and females, physically and behaviorally, but those things stand out so much because the mind is so prone to seeing differences. When you step back, the overlap, the behavioral, psychological overlap between males and females is shows much more similarity than differences. And I think that's particularly true in high K, stable, fortunate kinds of environments, like the kinds that we tend to experience now. Yeah. And so it really looks like where the differences between sexes become most exaggerated is when it comes to the short-term mating domain for biological, for real biological reasons and differences in investment required to have a whole baby come to term. So that seems to be the domain short to the short term short fling world seems to be where these differences are exaggerated. Is that right? I think David Buss has made that point before. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean there there's a whole plurality of mating strategies that that are available to to people and situations constrain them, you know, quite a bit. Um, you know, but there are male specific and female specific mating strategies that that people tend to find and, and short-term mating strategies. I mean, there are some classic short-term male strategies and some classic short-term female strategies as well. And I think that we tend to see those and those are of interest, but I think there's a lot more to human mating than just short-term male, female differences. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. So when we talk about long-term mating, you know, both males and females, you know, love, peace, you know, not war is important, <laughs> you know, passion, commitment, all these other things come into play. All of these things make us who we are today as humans over the course of thousands and thousands of years of evolution. Absolutely. Glenn, thank you so much for taking your time. I know you're very busy, director of the Evolutionary Studies Program, head of the department. Thank you so much and also for just being just a great friend and mentor of mine. Hey, man. Anytime, Scott. It's always fun talking to you, my man. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. 
BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.